a unique ecosystem, a rare habitat for wildlife, a crucial carbon store. The UK's uplands are all of these things. We've spent the last four episodes learning about how they are changing and what that might mean. But when it comes to steering that change, who exactly is at the wheel? Land ownership in Scotland is extremely concentrated. Reform campaigner Andy Whiteman reckons half of the country's rural land is owned by just 432 people. But increasingly, financial interests are investing in carbon credits, with green lairds and NGOs all getting in on the ownership game. But why? Let's find out. This is the British Uplands podcast with Byron Pace and Sarah Roberts, an exploration of change in one of the UK's most important landscapes. Grant to take down trees, plant to put hedges, plant to dig ditches, plants put on sheep, no grants for sheep, sheep come off. Oh, the uplands, they're burning the peat. If you hear a simple argument put forward about how the uplands need to be managed, then that simple argument has to be wrong. Definitely going to cut that out of the podcast. (laughs) Back in the Angus Glens, I visit Dee Ward, who you might describe as a traditional country estate owner. We're doing about 40 or 50 hectares of riparian planting, um, quite a few miles of hedgerow, and uh, we're creating about 50 hectares of wetland. We're restoring 50 hectares of wetland. Amazing. Is that all in the valley bottom? All in the valley bottom, yeah. His land supports deer stalking and grouse shooting, but he's also restoring peatland, planting trees, and growing a meadow. I guess what we've done is we we had to fence our boundary in the end because we're finding we're getting a lot of deer from, uh, well, some of our neighbours have no deer and others have a lot. So we were getting, the ones we're getting a lot, we fenced the boundary and that's helped us manage the population inside. And we probably took the population lower than we needed to, but we wanted to just kickstart the the regrowth. Um, now we're looking at it more carefully and we may be going to increase the number t- a tiny bit, not, not a huge amount, but of course the quality of the deer goes up, the stags get bigger. So you've um, got heavier body weights. Heavier body weights, people are happy to pay more money to come and shoot them and we obviously have the, the meat that we can then sell. So it, it, it's not obviously a massive income stream for us, but with running an upland estate you rely on a lot of small income streams which adds up to make everything pay. Mm-hmm. So. You, it's like grouse shooting as well you can't sort of look at it in isolation you have to say well how does it contribute to the whole so all the different income streams on the estate make make it pay and that includes things like renewable renewables and holiday cottages and events and farming and whatever so there's a number of different income streams which all add up i think that's one of the interesting things about um your place here um, I, I knew this ground before you actually owned it because I've obviously lived here my whole life, um, is that you're very conscious of exactly that, is of having these different, these different facets of your business model across the landscape to actually make it work. I know there's a lot of places that exist, like large land areas that don't really make economic sense. How important is it, do you think, in the long run for biodiversity and conservation and landscape management for it to make economic sense? I, I think it is, it's really important. And I, I, what I would say 
is that I think we've neglected wildlife and biodiversity because we've taken it for granted. And it's only in recent years we've started to think, where's it all gone or where's it all going? And I think, you know, there's talk with carbon and, and, and whatever, and there's a growing market in that. But for me, it's all about net biodiversity gain and I think valuing natural capital because I think unfortunately as humans unless we put a value on something we don't respect it and look after it as soon as it has a value people say oh that's worth something I better look after it now so I welcome that and I would like to see in the uplands more money coming in private and public to help me and, and other people in the uplands look after the upland areas you know improve river quality water quality flood management um carbon capture all these sorts of things that we can do but they all cost money mm -hmm. so actually getting an income from that would be good and as i say we're not we're not looking for to make big fortunes on it but just being able to make a living out of it and being able to focus on it day to day would be really good uh, when you're talking about value and particularly about carbon markets that's been a big shift in the way that particularly this kind of land, peatland landscape, uh, the uplands, has been viewed in the last couple of years. And we have seen, um, particularly in Scotland, quite dramatic shifts in land ownership and why people are owning land yeah. on the back of the value of carbon. Yeah. Do you see there, I mean, is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is there a clash there between our goals for biodiversity and our goals for climate change mitigation. And what is that landscape that has this carbon focus quite often solely going to look like in the future? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think that um, my, my concern with, uh, so, so I think there are a lot of good land managers in Scotland who are already running, managing land and they know what they're doing. And with a bit of encouragement, we'll do better you know even better and my worry is that you know city institutions financial institutions think I, we need to buy land and do it ourselves why not contract that to the existing owners and say we will work with you to deliver nature-based solutions ecosystem services etc and carbon capture and i think that would be a good good thing now obviously there are others who are just philanthropic or, or, or organizations that are buying land because that's what they want to do and that's what they you know they believe in rewilding and all the rest of it and and it'll be interesting to see what that landscape looks like my i, I love trees and 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 we, you can see we've planted a lot here but yeah we've my, been continuously walking <laughs> through new new tree planting the whole time we've been but, talking but so it, far. if you look up on the hill there's there's no trees i mean it's it's open moorland I like that balance between trees and open moorland and what I'm worried about is people think oh let's just plant cover everywhere with trees to me that's not the answer I think if you look at natural landscapes there's a mixture of open land and trees and I think that's the combination we want to see so I'm hoping that people will have a more holistic view of how they manage their land when they're valuing the carbon value of a square meter of ground or a square kilometer of ground, how, how do they do it? What, what they do is they, we, you do a peat depth survey. So they work out that, you know, that square meter, uh, they do it, I think every few meters, but okay. they- So it's quite a, intensive. Yeah, so they have a probe and they go, that's a meter deep, that's two meters deep, that's 50 centimeters deep, whatever. They work it out and they say, you have got X number of units of carbon in there. 
and then you get that validated um, by through the carbon code they validate and say yes that, that that is the right number and then those get awarded to you and you you then own them and you're in a position to then sell them if you want to or you could keep them to offset maybe your own carbon footprint so on a farm you might have you know driving diesel tractors or whatever you might have your own carbon footprint okay. you want to offset with some of that and anything in excess of that you might think well i've offset my own i'll sell the rest or whatever yeah the biggest landowner in scotland might surprise you though it's me well you too in fact all of us Government agencies like Forestry and Land Scotland own and operate swathes of countryside on behalf of the taxpayer. Non-governmental agencies too are making their mark on the landscape. Sarah travelled to meet Alan McDonnell from Trees for Life, an organisation which has spent decades trying to restore natural forestry in the uplands. What's the future, what's the plan for Trees for Life, what's the vision? The vision is uh, a landscape that is operating much more under natural processes at scale and uh, that people benefit from that. So it's looking at how, how can we have a more nature-based way of using the land uh, with uh, a, a wider economy because around that so the, the, the livelihoods that, that are uh, based on the land work with the land and work with nature. And so uh, we have a much healthier landscape for biodiversity, for climate and for people. Where did deer fit in to that agenda? Uh, like in integrally, uh, so they're natural part of the landscape. And uh, if we have deer at the right level that allows that allows it to work ecologically, then there then we've got this, there's all the benefits of deer, you know, as a as an economic resource and as an ecological resource. Mm -hmm. um, we can we can have them both. And so I believe you've got quite a large uh, project going on. Is it Glenafric? It's called Africa Highlands. Africa yeah. Highlands, yeah. Can you talk to me a little bit more about that? Yeah, so that's basically a proposal that uh, the people in a large landscape centred roughly on Glenafric, but it's um, it's 200,000 hectares. So it goes you know, all the way to the west coast and takes in places like Glenelg and comes all the way back you know, east of here. Uh, so yeah, taken in Loch Ness as well, and its proposal is that um, nature and the interests of people and the interests of livelihoods can can actually all benefit each other and work together. And it's, and too often at the minute and in the in the recent past, there's been too much of the, those sort of things seen as being in conflict. How do we learn from mistakes from the past when we look at the flow country and the carbon rush that we're in right now? Mm. And how do we prevent that from happening again? Yeah, I mean, there is a huge interest now in in planting trees to sequester carbon and to turn those into carbon units that then have a, a financial value. And that there is a danger that that can lead to uh, inappropriate planting on carbon-rich soils, which could actually end up being carbon negative instead of carbon positive. So one thing we could do, one of the reasons we talk about uh, letting trees find their own way in the landscape is that that's likely to minimise that because trees will grow uh, on more appropriate soils. They're, they tend to be looking for drier soils that have mineral content in them and are less, are just tend to be less naturally or carbon rich. But the thing is just, just be mindful of what you're doing. Understand you know, that there's a relationship between tree growth and soil. The trees pulling nutrients out of the soil, including carbon, to grow. 
and that as it does that it, it affects and can mobilize carbon in the soil and can release that carbon so when a tree is first planted you dig a hole expose that soil to oxygen and so carbon dioxide is emitted from that time um, and then over time as the tree grows if it's in the right soil it will hopefully draw more of that carbon back in for its timber and growth than it's than it's been emitted in that in that phase but if you don't get that right if you haven't thought about what soil type you're planting into what species you're planting densities these different matters that foresters do but actually thinking about well, what's the carbon implication of this mm. then um, then there is that danger there that this this kind of rush for carbon leads to uh, leads to perverse outcomes that uh, actually will make us worse off not better off are you seeing that outside of the work Trees for Life are doing? Are you starting to see that throughout the uplands? You can sometimes see and you look at places and think, well, oh, that looks very peaty mm. that they're planting on there. So a really carbon-rich soil that's having trees planted on it. And um, if, if they find a way, if that's getting into carbon finance, then that's, that's that carbon finance driving mm. peatland degradation and, and net carbon loss in the, in the wrong circumstances. How... I guess it's it's not as if you guys have the power alone to do it, but in an mm. ideal world, how would you f foresee the future um, in terms of preventing this? I think that's, I think we need to have in this um, rush to sequester carbon and address climate change, I think we need to have more conversations about what the physical solutions that look like. We are, I think, we're absolutely convinced that, and I think it's, it's accepted, in fact, it was accepted at COP26, that the nature and climate crises are intertwined. They're kind of the same thing. And that climate change is being driven by unnatural disruption of our carbon cycle at a global level. And therefore, the best route to repairing that is to is to have nature-based solutions, is the, is the buzz for term. And that's fine as a term, what does it mean in practice? And what does it mean in, in this country and in these kinds of locations? And so from that should flow standards about uh, how you plan and how you decide where to plant and what to plant. All that there should be, you know, we need to kind of agreed standards on mm. that so that something can be recognised. Yes, that, that is, uh, that's doing both things. It's, it's addressing the nature crisis and, uh, and addressing the climate emergency at the same time. I want to take a quick moment here to go back to Dr. Richard Lindsay, who we spoke to in episode one. One of the most obvious landscape changes in recent years has been onshore wind. There are just shy of 9,000 onshore wind turbines in the UK, with two-thirds of that in Scotland. They supply a substantial amount of renewable energy for the country, but could their impact on carbon-storing peatlands be potentially negative? I do think the universe has a rather ironic sense of humour in the sense that we build wind farms to reduce our carbon emissions. Where are the best locations in our landscape to build wind farms? In other words, where do we get the best wind with the most amenable landscape in terms of constructing these wind farms? You know, steep, rugged, rocky slopes are not amenable for wind farm construction. What you want are gentle whale-back hills. Exactly the sort of place where our best peatland forms. So we have a direct conflict of interest between where peatland forms best and where wind farms 
perform best. Oddly enough, I don't really have a major issue with the turbines, although uh, ornithologists and um, bat specialists uh, have quite justifiably many concerns about the turbines. Um, for me, the problem is the uh, construction and service roads, because these roads have to cross, cut across the entire blanket bog landscape. And that means that the, the roads disrupt the natural hydrology of the peatlands. Um, and once a road is constructed, it's, it's pretty difficult to remove. Um, so you're creating a permanent feature there. And you know, really, the, the issue is that the vast majority of our um, extensive blanket bog landscapes, outside those that are explicitly protected by law, are now pretty much dominated by what are often called rings of steel. Um, if you go to Spain, Spain has blanket bog in its northern Cantabrian mountains. Just little bits of blanket bog on these whaleback hills. Every single example of these small blanket bogs in Spain, every one of them is dissected, bisected, trisected by wind farm roads. So you can stand on the highest point in the Cantabrian mountains, surrounded by a small area of blanket bog. And as far as the eye can see, you can see wind turbines. And all of those are on small fragments of peat with inevitable uh, disruption to the hydrology. Um, and we've had examples, particularly in Ireland, where there have been massive um, peat avalanches or bog bursts um, linked directly to wind farm construction. Uh, I was involved in helping the local villagers in a case outside Galway, where the biggest wind farm built at the time in Ireland caused this massive two kilometres peat slid down the hill, travelled for 20 kilometres down the river system. Um, eventually, the Irish government was found guilty in the European Court of Justice. Um, you know, the, these are the sorts of things which we've now created as a legacy problem because we don't know what the long-term impact of these will be, but we can already see some impact, some negative impact. In every episode and subject in this series, deer have come up. Their presence and numbers impact so much of what happens in the uplands. In June, the Scottish Government made changes to the law, allowing male deer to be culled year-round in a bid to tackle numbers. A decision many argue is counter to the basic understanding of population dynamics, populations of almost all species are controlled through the numbers of breeding females and not males, which has made this decision very controversial. There are thought to be around a million deer in Scotland alone, double the number since the 1990s. 
And if we are to affect change in the uplands, grow more trees and rewild, this poses a real challenge. Sarah traveled to meet game dealer Rory War at his processing plant north of Inverness. This holds about 200 ton of product. It's not quite as full as it was. And then we've got a trailer out there that holds 26 ton and then there's more in our, in our cold store. This stuff's all coming back from the cold storage now, but... Um, you You'd think time? lots of deer being shot would be a bonus to him, but expanding the cull is having a knock-on effect on the industry. You know, an ill-conceived thought, if I can put it that way, but um, by Scottish Government, I, I, the hardest discussions I have to have at the moment, I've had a couple over the last couple of weeks, where I've got guys phoning up, they've, they've got some culls to do, they can shoot it when I want, and they're asking, you know, when's the best time to do it? You know, is the price going to be going up? And I've kind of got to break it to them that I don't think it is at the moment. I mean, who knows what's around the corner? Mm. But right now, there's, you know, you saw in the freezer earlier, there's, you know, there's X hundred ton of product I've got there. You know, there's not a massive need for, for me needing deer right now. And if they want to increase the cull by, you know, 100,000 deer a year on top of, you know, that's another third of, what is it, 200,000 at the moment. You know, that's a huge increase in product. There's also the, the you know, the added, the added deer output from England coming into that as well. And sadly, the, I'm not getting any feedback from any of my customers that they want an extra 33% product next year. So if you look at just the basic principles of supply and demand is that, you know, if, you, if you've got this amount of product and it's coming at this amount of price, if you want to put that much product in, the only way you're going to sell more is to push another protein out is by making it cheaper. Mm. So again, you know, you've got these guys doing this fantastic job and you're, you're almost saying, you know, I'm going to give you less. And it's just, it's such a negative conversation because it's, it's almost like you're saying you're not doing a good job, you know, I don't value what you're doing. These guys work their socks off and do an incredible job. I mean, some of the carcasses we get, you, know, you can eat your dinner off the inside, but I just don't see it going any other way. And it just seems a shame when you've got, you know, the farm sector, they'll get subsidized left, right and center. And, you know, my fairly simple and let's be honest, slightly uneducated view, because I, I don't have all the hats to, to have all the answers. But, you know, if Scottish government want more product to go in, I think that, you know, the, you know, because that's what the people want. Yeah. They need to put their hands in the pocket and help subsidize it. It's confusing and it's difficult because, you know, the work they're doing is, you know, pretty, pretty incredible work. You know, the, the quality of the deer they're putting in is, is, is pretty amazing. And, you know, it's a bit of a slap in the face to some of these guys to say, I'm only going to give you, you know, £1.50 a kilo for the work they're doing. Um, but at the end of the day, we're not necessarily asking for more product. And the market isn't, I don't feel, being invigorated at the rates that say the Scottish government might want to increase the throughput to. So if you, you know, you try and compare that to other proteins, you know, if you want more beef or uh, you need more beef, then, you know, you, you grow more cows, I suppose. Whereas at the moment, I don't feel, maybe maybe some other places are, are I don't feel there's the want or the desire for another 100, 150,000 carcasses to be put into the Scottish market or certainly in the processing sector. So, you know, if there's more being produced than has been asked for, sadly, I can only see the price going one way. Do you feel that there ought to be more in terms of guiding when deer should be shot? So I, I guess the problem that, that the guys pull the trigger, the guys actually doing the cull during reduction, they have a job to reduce numbers. And the easiest way for them to do that 
is when is in October. Um, it's also probably more financially beneficial to them because that's when the guys want to hunt because it's when they're fighting. Yeah. But it's also when when the meat's at its worst. So we get 31%, I think, uh, of our annual throughput in that one month. So we get 31% of the product when, I'll be honest, I wouldn't eat it. For hundreds of years, the landscapes we have discussed in this series have been shaped by estate owners for their own pursuits like deer or grouse shooting. For good or for ill, that management has given us much of what remains today. Max Vishnivsky is a campaign manager at Pressure Group Revive. So Revive is a unique coalition of like-minded organisations that are working for a change in the way our uplands are managed, particular to uh, grouse moors and grouse moor management in Scotland, and I would go even further as to say particularly intensively managed grouse moors. So we're looking for a reform uh, of that upland management use, and uh, we believe that when we achieve it, uh, we achieved all our goals, um, it would be to the benefit of Scotland's people, wildlife and environment pulled together. So can you can you just paint a picture of what that sort of new visions new vision of the uplands is? What what does that landscape look like if I'm a hillwalker or a biker or, or somebody who uses those big wide open spaces currently? Yeah, well, uh, as it stands right now, of course, uh, you know, much of Scotland's land is managed for grouse shooting. No one knows exactly how much, but we know it's a lot of land anyway. Uh, estimates can be somewhere around uh, you know, a million hectares or so, around about half the size of Wales. And, uh, you know, within that, those uh, landed estates, uh, management, many management practices go on right now, such as uh, muir burn, which are patches of uh, land burnt uh, to make the la land mass more suitable for grouse, whereas longer shoots are not at that time burnt. Uh, ensure that uh, the grouse can have cover. The purpose is making sure there's a surplus of grouse for sport shooting. And currently, if you go on to Moorland, what you will see, uh, particularly in the most intensively managed estates, are wildlife traps, whether they be snares uh, that surround stink pits, piles of carcasses, which are often put in areas um, of, of where grouse shooting is prevalent. Uh, that lure the animals into the snares or other traps that you'll see in logs, spring traps. Uh, those are things that are very common sites on our moorland just now, as are medicated grit stations, which are sometimes in trays, sometimes in mounds that are dug out the ground, which are filled with grit, which uh, helps the grouse naturally ingest its food, but uh, is very often medicated, sometimes with really high strength medication. So, um, and the purpose of that, from our point of view, is to make sh uh, sure that uh, there are more grouse to be shot for sport. That's why all this stuff is done. And uh, a reformed uplands uh, that we could look to, and there's not one single silver bullet for all this, but uh, at the heart of much of this is what could it look like for our people, our wildlife and environment pool to get it together? And a lot of that is, uh, you know, you could see the peatland restored. You could see uh, the reforestation of much of Scotland's land. If you look across Europe, for instance, the, you know, there are natural hill, uh, tree lines and where uh, a lot of the uplands is actually forested. 
and Scotland is rather desolate in comparison to much of the uh, much of our European cousins and neighbours. If you uh, look at Scotland's landmass that's currently forested, it's around 18% or so of Scotland landmass that's uh, for, uh, forested. The potential is far greater for us, whether that's commercial or non-commercial, redevelopment of natural woodland. Um, that can actually benefit Scot- Scotland's uh, local economies uh, in terms of forestry and also in terms of uh, the way our environmental and carbon sequestration services. There's so much potential there that we could use, not just in areas that are currently dominated by driven ground shooting. There are other upland areas which could use this kind of regeneration, but uh, there are certainly many opportunities for us to take forward with reform of grouse moors, with land reform uh, and, and, and such reforms that can make a difference for us all. It's been a bit of a refrain in this series, but I wondered how Max felt about the conflict between local and national biodiversity. A more diverse uplands with tree planting and rewilding, threatening a landscape that is significant in a global context. You may have heard the phrase right tree in the right place. Um, totally, that's yeah. probably the, the way the way forward in that. And it, absolutely, peatland has to be protected. The Scottish government are investing uh, hundreds of millions of pounds in the course of the next decade into peatland restoration, the rewetting of our, our landscape so that it can sequester more carbon. And these peatland areas are, uh, you know, I heard that somewhere around about 80% of Scotland's peat is actually in a degraded state. It's a... Uh, um, it's a, it's a large figure anyway, and that means it's actually emitting carbon as opposed to sequestering it. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the, yeah, you have to do things appropriately and uh, in a well-measured way. You can't suddenly just plant trees on everything. Uh, there's, no, there's no need for a monoculture um, in, in any environment, and diversity is a strength. So if we were to vastly reform grouse moors and change the way our uplands are managed, how would it work? Would carbon credits become a key income? How would it be implemented in practice? It's very possible that estates themselves could possibly transition and make more money from carbon credits over time. Uh, I'm sure there's some possibilities there, uh, but ultimately who benefits uh, who, who benefits from the land ownership models of Scotland? Uh, and that's why as Revive, the coalition, we're looking, uh, we're looking at uh, to campaign on issues like land reform to uh, to ensure that these benefits can be for more for the communities. And, you know, uh, carbon credits, we talked about silver bullets earlier on, probably aren't necessarily the only silver bullet you'd look for either as a replacement or anything, uh, especially as you said, uh, you know, if, if, if carbon sequestration is at the expense of biodiversity potentially, you know, there can't be that, uh, that, that one single approach. So um, in terms of going forward and in terms of uh, democratising land ownership in Scotland, it's very likely what you have to have are a series of land taxes, taxes on the land that disincentivise large, huge tracts of land from uh, being owned and being sold in these big, huge packages. Uh, And and land taxes are probably one of the, the best more direct legal routes to diversifying land ownership models in Scotland. Uh, and if carbon credits are to be had or, great, or subsidies, re, uh, a refocusing of public subsidies into different land 
uses are to be had, then uh, many people who support land reform would argue these benefits should go to local communities. I wanted to continue pulling on this thread of what an alternative uplands could look like. What if we left it alone? Pete Cairns is from Scotland's Big Picture, an organisation campaigning for a more rewilded landscape. I travelled to Glenfeshi to find out more. Rewilding is is anything that counteracts more dewilding, anything that enriches and expands habitats rather than further fragment and degrade them, anything that leads to more nature and, and not less nature. So if, if we accept that, which is something that you said early on, that we need private investment and we need private landowners to be um, on board and have a vested interest in uh, restoring nature, how do we um, shift that mindset? How do we, how do we incentivize the kind of restoration that you're talking about? Yeah, and again, it's not, it's not a simple question. And I think part of that incentivization will be financial um, and different people are, are driven by different things motivated by different things of course they are um, and some can afford to, to take the loss to take the hit if you like by owning a highland estate some some can't so so the finances do come into it however um, you know i don't believe that that's the, the top and bottom of it i think you know you mentioned the word values and you were referring to financial values but personal values play a huge role in this um, you know what your belief systems are um, where you come from, which peer group you're part of, you know how willing you are to break rank from that peer group. All of these factors um, dictate people's willingness to change and, and the speed at which they do so. There's a, a, a landowner, you probably know him, I won't mention his name, but he, he, he rang me a few months ago. He said, you, you know about this rewilding stuff. I thought, here we go, I'm going to get a, an ear full here. And, and he, anyway, long story short, his motivation, his his priority was passing on his estate to his daughter in what he termed to be an economically viable situation. So he was looking at what they did now and thinking 20 years from now is this going to work um, and he'd concluded rightly or wrongly no. So he was looking at various options one of which was rewilding. He, he described it he said I see this rewilding as a, as a train coming down the track. He says I can see it coming. I don't like the look of the train. I don't like the people on the train but I can see the train heading my way. And he says, and I don't want to get hit by it. So, so what he was really meaning was that, you know, he, he had no sense of sort of en environmental altruism, as it were, but his, his motivation was one of legacy. And he was just looking at different options as to how that legacy might be, might be more palatable or productive than, than perhaps it will be if he hands on the estate as it is. So, you know, incentives come from a different range of reasons. And I think money is one, legislation is another. And, you, you know, going back to deer numbers, it may not ultimately be a choice for deer managers about their deer densities. Um, but I think values and beliefs, culture, plays a massive role in this, huge, huge role in this, especially in Scotland, given the history that you, you described. Nobody knows what habitats will develop if we took the break off. Um, and that's quite unnerving for some people. And I think just going on from that, there's two key words at the heart of this debate. One is change. People don't like change, especially if they feel that change is being done to them by outsiders. Outsiders can be the establishment, the bunny huggers, the vegans, the whatever. Um, and that, that's understandable. That's just a human trait. We're all wary of change or fearful of change, especially if we don't know the outcome. And the second one is this really tense word, I think, which is control. 
And if you think about it, we've had centuries to get used to having control over every square inch of this country and all the species within it. We dictate which species live in which areas, in what numbers and to whose benefit. And again, rewilding is basically asking people to relinquish some of that control back to nature. And if you're a land manager, by definition, that's quite unnerving because you not only see the control over your kingdom, so to speak, slipping away, but also your your sense of de destiny, your sense of custodianship, your sense of stewardship, your your very identity in some cases. There's this notion that, that rewilding involved a choice between the needs of nature and the needs of people, and we couldn't have both. It was, it was a binary choice, one or the other. That's never been the narrative of Scotland the Big Picture, and, and neither has it been the narrative of organisations that we, that we work alongside. So this notion that rewilding means de-peopling, um, I understand where it's come from, and I understand that it's a, it's a convenient argument for, for some people, but it's absolutely never been part of our narrative. And I, and I think genuinely believe that the restoration of our natural habitats is good for nature, it's good for wildlife, it's also good for climate, but equally, if we engineer that model of, of mutual benefit, then it can be good for people as well. We've heard today from a traditional estate owner, tree planting groups, campaigners to reform grouse moors, and those who want to see it return to a wilder state. From any direction, change is happening in the uplands. How these voices are heard in Holyrood and Westminster can set us on a course which will define these landscapes. There is change coming. There is change already. But there are also choices. I hope you've enjoyed our journey together over the past five episodes. Next week, Sarah and I will be getting together with our producer, Davey, to discuss some of your comments through the series and talk about what we've discovered in the British Uplands. I do hope you will join us. The British Upland series is presented by Byron Pace and Sarah Roberts, co-produced and edited by David Shanks as part of the Into the Wilderness podcast, an MH Studios production.